Hi, I'm Michelle Fenton, and welcome to the Happy Texture Podcast. What would it take to develop resilient, sustainable communities? How do we design cities that support our collective happiness? Join me as my guests and I discuss how we can plan, implement, and foster places that allow us to flourish and grow. We're pleased to bring you this special two-part episode of Happy Texture, where we join landscape architect and urban designer Derek Lee, partner at PWL Partnership. Excuse the noise as we decided to take this podcast recording outside in one of Derek's uh, most treasured projects, Olympic Village. Due to the coronavirus, we couldn't do this in the studio, so we opted to take a walk around Olympic Village and hope you enjoy this episode and don't forget to join us for part two. Yeah, so um, we have Derek Lee from PWL Partnership, Landscape Architects, here with us today at the Habitecture Podcast. Thanks, Derek, for being here. Nice to be here. Um, I should say that um, we are outdoors uh, because of COVID, but I think it's a great opportunity to be in one of my favorite of your works, uh, Olympic Village. Um, I think a lot of people know your work uh, throughout the city and certainly in BC as uh, some of the most um, top and popular and well-loved public spaces in in the city. So it's such an honor to have you here. Well, thank you, Michelle. And it is certainly an honor to be here. Um, The first thing I'll say is this environment that we're in at Olympic Village was basically um, the culmination of many efforts on many people's part as a as a broader collective team. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I started this work back in probably 2004, 2005. And even then, um, there was probably about five years of planning that had already started on this. But it was a really interesting journey because um, we had an amazing team. It was an integrated design team of professional consultants, but also really close relationship with all departments of the city Mm -hmm. and when you're thinking about designing a whole community like this including the public spaces and trying to innovate it's really important that that team gels and that you're really working together i mean we were working on a weekly basis with the city i mean we had a studio there at the city and we were literally working there a lot of the time so it was really exciting and coming out of that obviously was this which you know is quite unique for the city of vancouver you know in terms of the urban density in terms of um the sustainability approaches we took um the unique public open spaces that Mm -hmm. are here you know we're sitting right now at olympic plaza which um came out of the, the framework plan but also the way that we envision the waterfront by incorporating ecology and merging that with the industrial context yes. of that's the certainly one of unique. the more unique aspects of it yeah of the, of the, the entire planning for sure yeah for it's, sure it seems to come in very seamlessly as part of the public infrastructure yeah and that was the idea is we wanted to create something that didn't feel like an imposition on the site mm-hmm. but that uh honored kind of the 
past history of the site. I mean, there's certain patterns of um, development that were here prior to this, like the the alignments of the industrial inlets that we kept. Um, you know, recognizing the plaza here used to be a slipway, That's right. a barge channel yeah. that the barges would come in with the big piles of salt that would then be distributed into the salt building, the big mm -hmm. red salt building that is now craft. And so that whole framework, that that imprint we wanted to celebrate. Yeah. And of course, the retention of these historic buildings as a result of that. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, certainly when you talk about this project and certainly when I've talked to you in the past about your work, there's there's a certain there's a there's a passion there. And it, it to me, it's 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 always so wonderful to talk to you because the passion has maintained itself over yeah. many years and decades of doing this work. Yeah. So I kind of want to start, you know, where did this come from? Where does and, and how do you keep that passion for the promotion of quality urban spaces? I think the most passionate aspect of this for me is I'm not doing this for myself. This isn't driven by one's own desire to create great design for one's own interest. It's really coming from designing great places for the broader benefit of the community, right? right? And there's, you know, even though I tend to thrive within kind of the early planning and design, conceptual design stages, there's nothing like seeing something built and seeing people interact with an environment that they were participants right. in planning and envisioning, That's right? right? Yeah. And, and even though this was probably 15 years old, you know, in terms of the process where we started, you know, we've continued to see that process evolve in, in all of our projects. And, and we just talked about this over coffee was this idea that, you know, when, when we begin to engage with participants, with the public, with the citizens of a place, you know, oftentimes what's beneficial is just to start from a blank canvas, you yes. know, start with no con preconceived notions right. and, and really just listen, you know, just take it all in because, you know, we, even though we're professionals at what we do, we're certainly not the experts of that place. Yes. You know, it's the people that live there that interact with that place every day that are really the ones that should be driving that process. That's right. Yeah, respects. I mean, there's a term uh, um, expert citizen and citizen expert, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's one of the things that are that's starting to show up a lot in planning, certainly as an architect and even in, in the interior design work that I do. Right. Um, to me, that's one of the most crucial parts is that, that the, the concept of this is a team sport in a way. Yeah. And that when you have a varying perspective, there's a, there's a richness to a space and a belonging that people can have because yeah. they've contributed or they see themselves yeah. uh, represented in the design process. Absolutely. And I think for, certainly from the Happy Texture podcast point of view, that's one of the things we, we are really, we want to advocate is that this understanding that the public and the end user have as much agency over the space that's being designed for them yep. as the designer who's really the facilitator of you know all of these layers of interactions layers of desires layers of history yeah and um, and looking forward in the future as to to how I mean, we, we live in a very diverse city so yep. you know a, a design coming from one head is no longer seems appropriate yeah you know, so totally. Yeah. So, you know, we're here um, outside <laughs> distance. 
um, because of COVID and, and in a way it's kind of nice, you know, um, to be able to be in the space that you, you've had such an intimate, uh, intimate knowledge of. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you've seen COVID change the idea of public space. And certainly it's, it's, it's shown itself to be very important because now that we have to be outside and distance, quality public space, public space, but quality public space is now a really critical part of how we maintain health and well-being in our cities. Um, and so from a post-pandemic point of view, what are some of the things you're seeing in terms of how we need to rethink urban space, public space? Well, I think what was really apparent to me was this summer, um, mm -hmm. walking through the parts of our city. And even though the shopping malls were closed, the re by and large, the restaurants were very low capacity and closed and some of these other places that we normally frequent, walking through the parks, they were just, you know, filled with people. Yes. And it was remarkable. It was to totally me remarkable. Yes. Yeah. And even, even just over here at Hinge Park, you know, where you have yeah. the open lawn, you know, people were so meticulously spaced apart, yeah. but every square area of that park was filled with people. Mm -hmm. People couldn't travel, you yeah. know, you couldn't hop on a plane and travel to another country or do that sort of traveling. So people realized that they could make the most, the most of their public spaces locally. And I think that was a real revelation for people that there was the ability to experience a sense of joy mm -hmm. in our own spaces. And I'm sure that people were exploring, you know, certain areas of the city, perhaps locally, that they maybe had not considered otherwise. Certainly, yeah. Right? Certainly I did. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that was a real revelation. And, and I think it opened people's eyes to the value of public space and what it means to be able to um, value that well after the pandemic. Right. The other thing that I think the pandemic has shown us is keeping things local from a community perspective too. And, you know, one observation that I've had, and I've now been working at home uh, for nine months. Yeah. Our company's doing very well, but we're all by and large working at home. Yeah. Is that we tend to be walking around our neighborhoods more. We tend to be maybe frequenting the local coffee shop during the day rather than downtown. Yeah. And so what we're beginning to see are these public spaces in our neighborhoods beginning to thrive right. more than maybe just that whole commuting to the urban center. Yeah. We talk about the 15 minute city. I, I'm advocating for the five or the 15 minute neighborhood rather, right. but I'm advocating for the five minute neighborhood right. because that's exactly yeah. how we can be interacting and building those connections with our neighbors. Yeah. And, our and, and certainly that goes not to just an enjoyment and where you live, but certainly from a resiliency point of view in terms of maintaining uh, financial stability within those neighborhoods. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that you, you actually invest back into those neighborhoods and perhaps that strengthens the um, importance of public space mm -hmm. and the design of public spaces, even within smaller communities. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's almost a it's almost a gorilla take back of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean we've certainly seen it in our neighborhoods, yeah. right? Like I live at Canby Village, uh, between Canby Village and Douglas Park, and you know uh, we talk about tactical urbanism, you know, and we've seen a lot of initiatives by the city to close down side streets, make mm -hmm. more space for outdoor patio spaces, places for people to interact, and now that those spaces, a lot of those temporary closures have been in place for several months. It's funny how a short time can pass and you can barely remember 
that it was a street that you'd be driving through. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think for a lot of people, they're like, yeah, why would we change this That's now? right, yeah. Right? You know, that, that, that certainly talks to the opportunity of a crisis, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that, you know, when I, when in the middle of the pandemic in the summer, one of the joys I had was cycling around Stanley Park on the road. Yes, me too. Uh, and that's what I mean. Like there, there, there are certain aspects of public space that as citizens, we, we've claimed. Yeah. We've, we've owned it and we've claimed it. And now we're looking to demand that certain, those qualities are maintained. That's somewhat. right. Yeah. And there's, there's a certain um, uh, richness to that because now you're layering um, intention of the people who actually use the space mm-hmm. onto that space. And those spaces become transformed. Mm-hmm. Certainly Stanley Park was transformed when, you know, like teams of cyclists were just going up those some were walking up, frankly, but, yeah. um, you know, it was incredible. I'd never seen anything like yeah. that in the city. Oh, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I was there, like, every every Sunday morning I was doing my loop around Stanley Park and even going along um, Beach Avenue, yeah. right? So now they have that sort of one-way loop beach to uh, Robson. So That's right. So the other half of the street is actually closed to cyclists and pedestrians yeah. now uh, to yeah. use. And, yeah, I, th- you know, it's human nature. Right. Yes. I, I think that we often get set in our ways and oftentimes it needs a little bit of a shake up. That's right. You know, in this case, it was COVID. Yeah. Um, to allow us to think about our environments differently. Yeah. And you want to seize those opportunities. And That's you know, right. It would be a shame to see it kind of go back to the way it was yeah. if people felt that this was a big improvement. Yes. Right? Yeah. And th- there's a certain democracy to that, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. when I think about... Um, you know, the, the wide range of social, um, economic, cultural demographic that have actually started to claim the public space, yeah. um, really driven from the fact that restaurants had to close out and, you know, all these malls had to close. And so yeah, that culture got driven out onto the street. That's right. And um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a real um, equality about that because you don't have to you know, pay $5 to go grab a coffee in a fancy restaurant or $20 yeah. meal, you can actually bring your home-cooked meal and sit outside yeah. with everyone else. So that's one of the things I noticed and appreciated about um, the claiming of public space by the general public. You know, it starts to even that curve yeah. of the haves and the have-nots in yeah, a way. totally. I mean, <clears throat> just a point of reflection, I was fortunate enough just before the pandemic to be traveling through Europe with my family. You know, we were in Helsinki, we were in St. Petersburg, we went through um, the Baltics, and we found our way all the way down to Barcelona. And in each city that we visited, there is, because I think in the European context, it's a much more mature public culture. That's right, yeah. It really is. And you see more and more people valuing and utilizing public spaces, you know, compared to what we had been doing here. Mm -hmm. But when the pandemic hit and you'd be walking through the city and you'd be seeing people outside and using these spaces, you'd be like, I was like, yeah, this, this really feels more like what it, what I experienced yes. just a few months prior. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes society needs to evolve. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think this point is a bit of an evolution in our society of, of um, moving away from the auto-centric way of experiencing our cities, which is really dominated, let's be honest, over the last yeah. century, yeah. And, and moving into um, more of this, um, uh, more of a human scale yes. uh, form of interaction of yeah. public space, yeah. right? 
And, and, you know, there's a natural, there's a natural tendency for us to gather in spaces that are designed at that scale as well. And, and certainly when, even when we look at this neighborhood, Olympic Village, the variety of scales is one of the things that I love about Olympic Village. And I think a lot of people love and adore about Olympic Village. Um, one of the things I know was a bone of contention in the design was a lot of people were concerned about the tightness of some of the streets. Yeah. But as it turned out, those streets became some of the most beloved places to walk in this neighborhood because it's tight, it's intimate, it's human. Yeah, totally. If you visit many old cities around the world, you know, whether it's like Marrakesh in Morocco or even, you know, uh, some of the smaller streets that you'd find in cities like Paris and London, they are quite tight. And and, uh, uh, there's a, a, a real interesting quality to them that we as North Americans are not used to. Yes. And so that resistance in the early planning stages of what is this going to result in? Because people were people were concerned that, you know, if you lived on the fourth floor, you'd be looking through your window into the window of the guy across the street. Yeah. Um, but it's incredible how closely people live and how comfortable people are living that close together. And we, of course, we have our spatial bubbles. Yes. But, but... We are Canadian after we all. Are, we are Canadian, yeah. But but they, they can be quite intimate. That's right. You know, and still we, we find those ways of either being public or being private within yeah. those more intimate yes. bubbles. Yeah. Right. And, you know, one of the remarkable things I think um, you don't see in some of, of the other developments and which is one of, one of the things that I love about this neighborhood as well um, is that people actually live here. Yeah. You know, compared to like a community like Cole Harbor, where it's quite dense. Yeah. Um, but you don't have like people live here, people rent here, people own here. It's 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 lived in. I I remember when the Olympics came, and you know the athletes were using these uh, buildings temporarily. <clears throat> they had already been purchased by buyers prior to that. Um, there was also the rental housing that they were living in. I, it, there was this lingering question in my mind whether it would turn into a coal harbor mm-hmm. after that. And I was shocked how quickly it had changed. Mm-hmm. You know, within a year, people were having block parties in this neighborhood. Yeah. And that was a profound difference from a lot of these other large-scale planned communities that we've seen, you know. Um, and I've, I've asked myself, well, why is that? You know, what? What is it that has is fundamentally different to this versus, let's say, Cole Harbor? Right. I, I think that, for one, it's the. Um, I think the tenure is different here. I think one of the early planning principles of this was to have a much more balanced tenure mm-hmm. of rental market, you know, non-market or market rental, you know, more of a balance versus right. a lot of these other more monotone, monodemographic uh, communities. So inherently the land use facilitated a much more diverse group of um, people mm-hmm. living here. I think also there was a commitment of, of a lot of the, um, the merchants that came in to, to um, there was almost an inherent critical mass and demand within this broader area here. You know, you have, it's close to Mount Pleasant. There's, a, there's an existing urban fabric that right. this is tied into quite nicely. And the granularity of our planning work here, I think, is really important. And, you know, this 
intricate network of public spaces, right. um, places just to be and hang out, I think are much more abundant here than perhaps some of the other communities yeah. that have been planned. And and that has really, I wouldn't underestimate the power of, of that kind of early planning. Um, well-scaled spaces. Um, you know, we're sitting in the plaza, the Olympic Plaza here. There's sort of a stickiness to all the edges where you can sit on a patio and people watch yeah. as people are cycling and walking along the seawall and hanging out in the, in the plaza space. There's also this sense of uh, a constellation of these outdoor living rooms or spaces mm-hmm. that we really uh, worked hard to, to create, whether it's in the internal courtyards, the semi-private courtyards of right. these uh, uh, residential blocks, uh, or these larger spaces, be they the, the Olympic Plaza or, you know, Hinge Park and the waterfront. So, uh, yeah, it's all about good fabric, good yes. urban fabric, good connections with the surrounding communities. Um, yeah, and it's been quite incredible to see this place evolve from, you know, these few blocks yes. kind of now expanding out beyond. And it keeps going, too. And it keeps going. Yeah. I, I, I'm very excited about this scale yes. of development, um, which feels more European. It, yes. You know, it feels more human in that context yeah. than perhaps the, uh, the towers and some of these other built forms where, you know, if you live on the 20th floor, how connected are you yes, right. to yeah. the ground yeah. and to what's happening in the public domain? Whereas here, you know, you could be on the fourth or sixth floor and you still have this... Um, connection you know sort of the jane jacobs uh, eyes on the street connection that's right to yeah, public yeah. Right. you touched on something that i want to explore a little bit more um in terms of the planning and policy and we, we've talked a lot about the grassroots uh, idea that uh, public space uh, and communities can be designed by the people who actually use yeah. it but you mentioned something about the policy of that sort of mixed density that mixed use almost yeah. rental supported housing market housing and I wonder if you can, I'm not sure if you can talk a little bit about how important policy is to dovetail into public grassroots movements to create spaces that are successful. Absolutely. I think, first of all, local, local governments and decision makers need to have a very innate understanding of what the, what the community needs and mm-hmm. wants. And <clears throat> that, that really should be the first step. I talked about this idea of just having an open listening session. Mm -hmm. Once you get that kind of feedback and those types of priorities, um, policy really is the foundation to ensure um, that success. And so using Southeast Falls Creek as an example, you know, our first step was really after doing iterations of of planning, framework planning with, Mm -hmm. with input from the community, it was about creating a policy statement. Right. And so that policy statement that was endorsed by council in 2005, I believe, um, really set a few key uh, objectives. Number one, you know, creating uh, one of the most sustainable communities anywhere, you know, and that in- involved looking at it from a building's perspective, looking at integrating natural systems within the public spaces, looking at um, social aspects that would you know, contribute to people's health and well-being in the design of public spaces, uh, parks, etc. And then within that policy statement, you know, there was a very specific uh, uh, discussion around 
tenure, right? Mm-hmm. You know, thirty uh, percent affordable housing, thirty percent non-market housing, thirty percent market housing, right? Um, there are also in that policy statement were very specific uh, uh, guidelines around uh, the uh, form and massing of of this place, right? right? So we actually had a very very much uh, sort of a three-dimensional model of what the whole layout of this master plan would look like mm-hmm. um, that made its way into the policy statement. So, and it was a very accelerated process too, because shortly That's after right. that, we yeah. won the Olympic bid. That's right. And this had to be built by 2010. So we only had five years yeah. to, to Which move is a, this a remarkable feat in of itself. Yeah. I mean, that was, rarely do you see that happen. And it's um, good that uh, it did because it really set in motion the success of this um, in spite of the fact that, you know, there was a lot of planning around this uh, this site, you know, ten years prior, and you you really needed a catalyst yeah. to, to move it forward. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think the, the public policy part is something that we're starting to see wane a little bit in term in Vancouver specifically, in terms of a consolidated um, community planning effort. Uh, it's it it does seem that. Um, the, the excitement and the collaboration that happened, the intense collaboration that happened from a lot of different parties for this particular site uh, hasn't, hasn't necessarily been applied to community planning in the city. It's been mostly one-offs, you know, yeah. uh, and negotiations with specific developers as opposed to a really um, collaborative, concerted effort to plan a community. You know, we, we're looking at planning building sites now and not communities. And so I think the, the, the takeaway for me is, you know, as, as a citizen, as a citizen, as an expert citizen, um, would be to convince our politicians or council that the success of this wasn't built on, on the shoulders of one developer um, negotiating with city planners. It, it took a concerted effort. It took planning. It took care, it took information, and it took all hands on deck in a way to to what I think anyone anywhere in the world would say is a very successful uh, end result, a community yeah. plan. So um, hopefully those that are listening to this podcast can start to communicate that. I mean, one of the things we wanted to bring out in this podcast is to actually um, equip the typical person, the, the, the citizen, with the language and the motivation to actually be a part of their city planning. Thank you for listening to this Happy Texture podcast. Hopefully you join us for episode two, where we join landscape architect and urban designer Derek Lee, partner at PWL Partnership. For more information on this or any other episodes of the Happy Texture podcast, you can find us at happytexture.com. H-A-P-P-I-T-E-C-T-U-R-E.com. Special thanks to our sponsors, Cora Architecture and Interiors. Designing places for being. Post-production by Vanessa Hennessy. 